trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is Mason President Gregory Washington with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. Today is part two of our deep dive to the COVID-19 pandemic, which began in the United States a year ago and has literally forced most universities to close their doors or to go in lockdown. And we've gone through a series of openings and closings and openings and closings throughout the country. As of March 23rd, the day of this recording, upwards of 542,000 Americans have actually died of the virus. So vaccinations are going up and we've seen a general decline in new infections, but we still have a long way to go. Last week, I spoke with Amira Roes, a professor in global health and epidemiology in Mason's College of Health and Human Services, about what we were doing about the virus, what's preventing us from knowing more, vaccine hesitancy, and how the lessons learned will apply to future pandemics. Today's guest is Saskia Popescu, a term assistant professor in the biodefense program within Mason's Schar School of Policy and Government. Dr. Popescu sees the pandemic through two lenses, as a public health expert and also as an epidemiologist working in hospitals in Arizona, where she actually lives. This gives her a unique perspective to talk about the virus from a policy perspective and from the front lines. Dr. Propescu has a PhD in biodefense. We're going to talk about that a little bit here from George Mason University and a master's in public health with a focus on infectious diseases from the University of Arizona. She currently serves as the member of the Federation of American Scientists Coronavirus Task Force and she's a member of the Committee on Data Needs to Monitor Evolution of COVID-19 within the Health and Medicine Division of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Her research addresses gaps within global health security, biodefense, healthcare biopreparedness, and the integration of antimicrobial resistance into global health security initiatives. Saskia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today. So look, I get it. You're not just a policy wonk. You're actually on the front lines managing this pandemic. Tell us a little bit about your day to day and talk to us about the experiences that you've encountered during this pandemic. Yeah, I was very fortunate to serve as an infection preventionist during the peak in Arizona. I've been able to take a step back, which has been very appreciated because it's quite exhausting. But working through two surges of COVID-19 in Arizona, which is a state that was very, very hard hit. In fact, we had one of the highest rates in the world is a very bizarre, frustrating, fatiguing experience. I think especially when your background is in infectious disease preparedness, pandemic preparedness, it's all of the emotions you would imagine. Working and pandemic response is vastly different than studying it. <laughs> you know, they don't train you for the fatigue that you feel when you're running a marathon in this and that it is very stop, go, stop, go. But also the exhaustion that comes when there's a lot of politicization and challenges with national leadership. 
Infection prevention, which is what I do, is challenging because we're the ones that are usually responsible for responding to these events like COVID and Ebola. We translate the guidance, we do the trainings, we ensure that healthcare workers and ancillary staff are protected and have the resources available to them to protect them. We're very passionate about it, but often folks don't realize we exist. So it's been very interesting to see how we've responded to COVID as a nation, but also in you know in the front lines in Arizona. And front lines, they are. It's interesting. This thing has become so politicized. The politicization has made your job more difficult. Even in Arizona, there was this big issue with mask wearing and whether the state was going to make it a mandate or not make it a mandate. Did that cause you any challenges? Did you see any issues that rose up due to the political side of this issue? Oh, 100%. And it goes beyond masks. I've written about it even because it's mind blowing as an infection preventionist, as an epidemiologist, you know, anybody working in public health, because you see the wave coming and you can't stop it. When we talk about Arizona, it wasn't just that this was a state that was really resistant. And when I say state, I mean, really, our governor was very resistant to implementing COVID precautions and restrictions. And we reopened very quickly and very prematurely in the spring of 2020. And without fail, you saw a really significant surge in the summer. And it, it wasn't surprising. And I think the fascinating part to me is everybody thought this was a concerning strategy. It wasn't just, okay, we're going to reopen, even though the data is not really meeting the thresholds for it, but that we were going to essentially open the floodgates and very, very quickly. So experiencing that, and then also just this resistance to a statewide mask mandate. And even more recently, it's been kind of this push-pull dynamic where Governor Ducey recently said all the schools have to reopen by March 15th for in-school or in-person lessons. And it was not a lot of heads up for educators. So there was a lot of concern about that because it is very resource and personnel intensive to open schools right now. And you need to make sure you're doing it correctly and safely. So there was that, but then also very excitingly, we're able to start offering vaccines to everybody who is a resident in Arizona over the age of 16, which is wonderful. But at the same time, a couple of weeks ago, we just lifted every capacity limit. So you could go to a bar that will have 100% capacity. It's just this really big challenge of trying to combat, you know, a state leader who is very, very big on emphasizing this false dichotomy of the economy versus public health when they really go hand in hand. So I think that's been an uphill battle. I'm really grateful for the local leadership that has stuck to infection prevention and COVID precautions. But it also, I think, sets this tone that masks are a political issue and you know, we normalize this behavior and saying that COVID isn't a concern anymore. So when you have state leadership, you know, just saying, all right, we're going to open the floodgates, we're going to open everything. And we're not as worried about COVID because we need to do X, Y, and Z. I think that tells people, oh, I don't have to worry about COVID anymore. So I don't need to wear this mask or I can go indoors and not stress when there's hundred percent capacity in a small confined space with a bunch of people. So it's been very frustrating, very challenging. You know, I mentioned before prepping for pandemic response when you're studying it and working in it is different. And I, I never thought I would have to experience the level of politicization that we have. And that's been, I think, a very draining piece to those of us working in it. Let's just put the policy issues, the politicization. Let's just push that aside for a minute. I don't know if you saw the images of what happened in Florida this weekend, but it was a massive party. The challenging part is we know what's coming on the back end of this. 
Do you think we're going to make it? Because right now it's a race to vaccinate as many people as possible to simultaneously stop the thwart of the virus that's really being launched because of our behavior. Americans, I, I think, have in some cases, in some places, have by and large said, enough, I'm going to go back to my lifestyle, even if that means I'm risking death. Are we going to make it? Right now, I describe myself as cautiously optimistic, but I mirror your sentiments and that I'm increasingly concerned. And I want to preface this with saying we all want to go back to normal. We all want to be able to go out and live life in a pre-pandemic sense. The issue and the concern I have is that when we say go back to normal, I actually don't want to go back to that normal because that's what got us into this position. There's a new normal that needs to happen where we view public health and inequity as a much bigger issue and put resources into addressing them. So when I see what happened in Florida, and it's not unique to Florida, honestly, we're seeing it everywhere. I've seen images in Vegas and Arizona. I think the hard part is really communicating with people that, yes, we have vaccines, which is such a promising, amazing scientific endeavor that we've been able to have within a year of a pandemic. But we still have a long road ahead of us. And the U.S. in particular has really struggled with this desire to see a very small downwards trend in cases as more of a permanent notion that the pandemic is over and then just opens up everything. And, you know, I say this again, speaking from Arizona, where we've definitely done that. But what I am particularly worried about right now is you're seeing these rapid reopenings across the U.S. around the same time. And I'm worried about that while we are vaccinating people and we're getting more and more every day, which is wonderful. But, you know, we see that. And then schools are reopening, which is so, so important. You know, we really needed to have prioritized schools earlier on in this, but I worry that all of these things are happening at the same time. And with the promise of vaccines, people are getting a little, I don't want to say a false sense of security, but it's like, oh, things are fine. So if the bar is open or the restaurant is fully open, that means it's safe and that's okay. So, you know, I, I worry about all of that because I think it does normalize that COVID is over, which it's definitely not. We've kind of stagnated in case decline. And there's still the very real concern about variants. So, you know, I see that and it, it breaks my heart. I sympathize and empathize with it because I think we all wish we could just kind of forget about COVID for a little bit. I mean, every single infectious disease person I know is just exhausted and so ready to just take a moment away from talking about COVID and thinking about COVID. We're at this very challenging precipice where we have the promise of vaccines, but if we pull back on all the restrictions and stop masking and distancing and ensuring we're mindful of indoor spaces, you can't vaccinate fast enough, essentially, in that case. And that's the piece that I'm particularly worried about. Let's start to move into the politics a little bit. Talk to me about how well you feel the current administration is managing the vaccine rollout. I think at last toll, we reached a record of more than 3.1 million vaccinations in a single day. That rollout seems to be full steam ahead. But I will tell you, it is incredibly uneven. You just highlighted that where you reside in the state you're in now, basically everybody over 16 can register to get vaccinated. Well, that's not the case in Virginia. Believe it or not, we are still in the 65-year-old category. So we haven't even moved to 1C. I think a few counties have, but by and large, most of the state is still trudging along. And this state is still significantly shut down. So we haven't had the calls. And so what, ha what it seems is happening is that those states that have opened the fastest have also seemed to have progressed 
faster along the lines of distributing the vaccines. How is that? That's a huge question that will probably take a long time for us to really review. You know, first, I think one of the most important things is to acknowledge, you know, we've vaccinated fully 44 million people in the U.S. That's about 13 percent of the population, which is really, really wonderful. I mean, obviously, it's not as fast as we would have liked, but vaccinating in an entire country during a pandemic is a Herculean task. It's something that we easily criticize, but it is so difficult, so challenging. One of the biggest things that we've seen in this pandemic, whether it is response or vaccination and distribution, is that variation you mentioned between states. And frankly, a lot of this is very dependent upon how states are rolling things out, the groups that they're prioritizing, but also the ability to recognize how we communicate and how we even do the registration process is something that we cannot just assume we have to look at the underserved populations we have. So for example, I think it was West Virginia that really had phenomenal processes because they recognized, well, yeah, we could do this all online, but if like a third of the residents didn't have access to internet or weren't using it. So if you put something online and you wonder why you're not getting enough people registered, that's a big indication that you need to take a step back and really look at the socio and economic demographics in your state. And so that's why we see a lot of variation. You know, I think back to West West Virginia did it. They knew who they were. We're this kind of state. We know we don't have a lot of people in the internet. We know we have, don't have a lot of folk who have adopted technology. We're going to just brute force this thing and we're going to go to where the people are and we're going to hit folk there. The next door state, we are struggling with implementing this vaccine. I think and there are so many pieces to it, too. Right. You know, I think a lot of states are recognizing that there are underserved populations that we have to proactively go out and support. California is one where they're reserving. I think it's like 40 percent of their vaccines for residents in the most disadvantaged areas. Tennessee has also been another one where they're working with pharmacies and community health centers to ensure that it's a a minimum from what I read of 100 vaccination sites with a focus on those rural and underserved areas. How we address vaccine distribution distribution is really reflective of how well we understand our communities. So, you know, again, I I stress that this is a really challenging task and our first phase involved having hospitals do it. And if you think about having hospitals be your distribution sites for a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a really big surge when we started this, it's no surprise that it wasn't perfect. Right now, I think it's very indicative of a need for a little bit more national support on this because when we emphasize and we lean on states to roll out this huge task that is so resource intensive and so personnel intensive and honestly prone to human error, then there is going to be that variation and that's going to inherently impact our distribution of vaccines. So I wish we would have been able from the beginning to have more national support in aiding states and distributions. There have been programs in national and international frameworks that have put in place to help manage this pandemic and manage the vaccine rollout. Can you talk a little bit about the PREDICT program and what were the consequences of the Trump administration pulling us out of WHO's PREDICT program? Well, so the PREDICT program was actually developed and uh, and launched in 2009 under USAID. And the goal was to help us identify those viruses that had pandemic potential. So it's really trying to find novel pathogens, novel viruses, and they've done a lot. You know, I think they've detected like 950 viruses and 
really utilized epidemiologists, wildlife veterinarians, virologists to address the issue of spillover and zoonotic diseases. So zoonotic diseases are those that use animals as reservoirs in many ways, and then spill over often into human populations. So Ebola is an example, COVID-19, you know, the virus that causes COVID-19, which is SARS-CoV-2, is an example of this. And when we address that zoonotic piece, or one health as we call it, which means that there's a really important need to understand the relationship between animal, human, and environmental health, we can proactively look for these viruses that exist in the environment and animals that could spill over into humans and could potentially cause a pandemic or a global health threat. The PREDICT program was really focused on the notion that let's go out there and find them (laughs) and really study them and understand how they exist in certain animals or species and what the potential for spillover is and then how transmissible that might be in humans. You know, if if you consider that really 75% of emergent infectious diseases are zoonotic, I think we can all appreciate the importance of that work, especially right now. You know, when the Trump administration basically dropped funding for this, it was a really significant blow. And Truth be told, it wasn't the only one because I also look at the hospital, the tiered hospital system we built after Ebola that was really funded on a national level to ensure that hospitals were able to care for patients with special pathogens, with high consequence pathogens like Ebola or MERS. That funding expired and was not renewed in March of 2020. So it's kind of- So in the middle of the pandemic- funding was not renewed. Yeah, they only renewed funding for 10 regional biocontainment units. So that meant over 300 hospitals that were getting funding to be either an assessment hospital or, you know, a special pathogens treatment center lost their funding for that. And you, when you look at that and then the PREDICT program and also us deciding to withdraw from the WHO, it really signals that we are not going to invest in preparedness, predictive efforts to understand infectious disease threats and fundamentally signaled that we don't understand global public health and that it was very much um, this America first mentality where it's like, well, unless it's right in front of us, we're not going to worry about it. Global health security is something that does not happen in a vacuum. It requires partnership. And when we look at how you know the Trump administration pulled out of the WHO as well, I think all of this really just signals to the world that we're not in interested in global health. We're not interested in partnerships and that we're not going to prioritize public health. So I think this decision was extremely isolating. And frankly, it really shed light on how the approach we were likely going to take with any global health threat like COVID-19. You know, this this isolation to me was really signaling how much of an uphill battle COVID would be and that we were basically saying, we'll do it alone and we'll figure out how, you know, it's going to work. But moving forward, we were, you know, basically indicating that investing in public health, global health and one health was not something America was interested in, which was very concerning from a public health and an infectious disease standpoint. This is an early warning system. PREDICT is an early warning system. The WHO and the special pathogens treatment centers I mentioned, all of these are readiness and support systems and partnerships that are so, so critical. So you highlighted that these programs were shut down in the midst of the pandemic, some before. Give me the other side of this. I'm not asking whether you agree with the policy or not, but why? Why would those entities be shut down at a time when it at least seems to me like they were most needed? One of the most common criticisms I've heard is that 
especially when it comes to like the WHO and predict, well, it wasn't working the way we think it should work or, you know, the U.S. Because it didn't, because it yeah. didn't predict. It didn't yeah. predict this virus, so it doesn't work. We don't need it, right? Is that right? <laughs> well, and you know, the thing is for the WHO piece, it's like, well, the U.S. is putting in the most money and what are we getting out of it? Which I think is a really horrible approach to anything global or any kind of public health because you only see sometimes the things that go wrong. You don't see all the wonderful things that go right. All of the pandemics or the outbreaks that are prevented from getting worse or happening at all. So that criticism of, well, the WHO isn't perfect. And, you know, we have a lot of issues with it. No agency is perfect. No program is perfect. And that just feels like a very myopic take for all of this, because it's more important for us to recognize that, There are flaws, of course, but we can better them. We can all collectively work to grow from them and working with existing infrastructure, especially the WHO, which is a really important global effort, is important. It just seems so mind-blowing to me to say, well, it doesn't work the way I want it to, so I'm just going to walk away from it instead of, all right, let's address the flaws it has and let's try and fix them. You know, let's make it better. And that was honestly the most common logic behind it, just that it's not giving me what I want out of it. And that's honestly not always what public health is about. It's also going to give you what you need, which is sometimes a mirror saying, all right, you have some serious flaws here yourself. We need to invest also in global health security, which is recognizing that our preparedness, our prevention, our ability to respond to infectious diseases is inherently bound to those around us and their flaws and their strengths. And I think that was the most common argument I heard from it. You know, the truth is there was something so mind blowing, I think, to so many of us to walk away from these programs, whether it was in the middle of a pandemic or not. But it was especially painful to do so when the U.S. was like, well, we're going to be fine. And and we weren't fine. The other part of the backlash was that the WHO was giving favoritism to China and not holding China into account for its role in this virus being propagated. These are real criticisms. The thought is that this is zoonotic, but maybe there were laboratories involved. There was a laboratory right there in Wuhan that actually had the capability of doing infectious disease work. And I thought this was really far-fetched really early on until I started hearing people like Scott Gottlieb, who's on reputable stations like CNBC and others, started to talk about the fact that this is plausible and we should actually think about it. Have you given any thought to that? You know, I think there's been pretty significant and substantial evidence to show that this really was a spillover event. This really was zoonotic and not a product of a lab failure. Again, I'm not I'm not the best person to make that determination. There are far better virologists and those looking at this continuously. But I do want to stress two things. The first is that, yeah, biosecurity, biosafety failures do occur. The U.S. is not immune to it. If you look at some of the slip-ups we've had with anthrax and even smallpox files at the NIH, I think that's an important reminder that human error does happen. And even if, which is a huge if, this was a product of a lab failure, you know, which I think is a huge if based off of the findings I've seen. The bigger issue, in my opinion, is not necessarily that that occurs, but the failure of so many countries to respond to it, especially in the U.S., an utter just lack of response and ability to contain it because, and I feel like it's very much a distracting topic to say, okay, was this the lab origin when we've had our own issues? But 
it feels like we're moving away from the bigger issue of how did the U.S. let it get so bad so fast and why are we still struggling with it? That's the thing that I get hung up on. Like I said, there are far better people to kind of evaluate the lab origin theory. But so far, what we're seeing is that it really is a product of zoonoses and spillover. But to me, I'm like, okay, that's an important question. One that will take likely years and we might never find the answer for, but we need to focus on the issues that we're still struggling with because the U.S. has a lot of work to do. If you look at the actual testing of the virus, if I were to categorize entities, I would say Asia and China by and large handle the testing portion the best, followed by Europe and then the United States. Agree or disagree? I would agree in terms of rolling it out. You know, I think we've definitely improved, but a lot of this is also about access to care and our overall healthcare infrastructure. So I, I would put, put in that caveat. <laughs> well, well, let me, well, then let me go to the next question. In terms of rollout of the vaccine, at least from what we know, best in China, U.S. second, Europe third. Is that right? Based off of the data I've seen, yes. I think the hard part, though, is that we're also utilizing a two-dose vaccine for the most part. One of, But one even of- with the two-dose vaccine, mm-hmm. we have managed to make it work. We've only got about 13% of the population, so a long ways to go. But yes, I think we've really started to make great stride into how many people we're vaccinating daily, which is wonderful. And I think as it opens up even more, we'll see that improve. So I would say, yeah, the U.S. has definitely worked hard to be a success story. One of the big pieces I want to add, though, is when we look at countries that are able to vaccinate so much of their population, it's also really important to acknowledge that vaccine equity and distribution is really uneven. So the residents of those wealthiest countries have received 90% of the delivered vaccine so far, which is about 400 million. And even in those countries, those individuals who are in poor populations have received less of the vaccine than those who are in more affluent populations, even in the U.S., yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's, so two- a, there's a breakdown by rich and poor. There's a breakdown by black, brown and white. And it's very, very clear that unequal societies cannot respond to a pandemic. It's interesting because I continuously get asked about Israel being this great example of a, a rapid vaccine plan. And they did. They did amazing things. But they also have a, you know, a significant Palestinian population that did not have access to vaccines. And when they did, it was very, very small. So when we talk about who's doing it right, I just think it's so important to discuss. Yes, you know, we're getting vaccines out, but is it fair? Is it equitable? So some countries are already issuing what are called immunization passports, which would be official documents verifying that you are vaccinated so that you can travel internationally. Should we do it here? I'm very hesitant about vaccine passports. It's a complex issue. I mean, there's pros. So ease of travel, you know, you can avoid long quarantine lines. It might encourage people to get vaccinated. But I'm also very concerned. You know, we just discussed vaccine equity. Who has access to vaccines right now? And questions about whether vaccines are going to be permitted. So for example, you know, if you are traveling to a country that requires a vaccine passport, but has only approved so many vaccines to be considered for that, is that going to pose a problem? I also really worry about this notion that when we develop vaccine passports and push them out, that all of the issues we already discussed, but also there's not sterilizing immunity that we've shown so far from the SARS-CoV-2 
two vaccines, meaning that yes, it's preventing what we wanted it to, which was severe disease, hospitalization, things like that. But there is still the potential, and we're already starting to see some of it, where fully vaccinated individuals will get SARS-CoV-2 and they will be asymptomatic or very, very minimal symptoms, which is great, but that means that they could potentially transmit it. So I think it's so important when we discuss these vaccine passports, the global dynamics of it, the equity issues of it, but that we don't assume that just because you're vaccinated, you are entirely have no risk. There is still a potential you might get COVID and transmit it. You know, I think it's just important to also discuss those caveats, especially if you're going into an area that doesn't have access to vaccines. And that doesn't even touch on the variance issue. <laughs> you bring up the topic of variants. This is something that has perplexed me even to this day. We are a very rich, wealthy country, basically the wealthiest in the history of man. We know the variants are a problem. It is clear. Why are we not doing a much better job in terms of genomic surveillance? Why is it that we, again, at the bottom of the doggone pile, do we just not want to know what the variants are and, and that they're coming? Are we afraid of the answer that it might tell us? Or is there something else? I don't think so, because I've known people working in public health and doing genomic surveillance that have been screaming into the void for decades, almost saying we need to be doing more of this. Genomic surveillance is so important because it allows us to monitor those pieces of a genome to help understand when these mutations happen, right? Viral mutations, super common, expected. The joke is virus is going to virus. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how they function. So genomic surveillance really allows us to track these little changes and these mutations that create new variants and how those might impact public health response or disease. Is it more transmissible? Is it more difficult to treat or causing more severe illness? Is it impacting children more? Things like that. What I've continuously seen is that we really just don't have the lab capacity to do it. So I think that this really comes down to emphasizing the importance of it. For Arizona, I know we do well, genomics. Wait, why would you say that? Look, we have a state university system unlike no other. The one thing we do have in this country are large amounts of research capacity at universities. And even you can extend that down nowadays to community colleges. That infrastructure is indeed here. And by and large, I would contend the expertise is there too. And if it isn't, the ability to get that expertise at academic institutions is definitely there. We can raise up and train up individuals to put in place that surveillance infrastructure in relatively short order, but there is no national will uh, yeah. to do this. This well, is, and, and this your is point not is a resource problem. This is a will problem. Well, in, in some ways it is a resource problem though. So we do have those structures in place, but to do additional testing and additional lab work on the samples that we're getting from positive, you know, SARS-CoV-2 positive patients, you also have to have more machines. You have to have more people running them. So it is about scaling that up, but it's also making sure that you're getting, you know, a wide enough sample of the population. That's not just refined, you know, just not specific to long-term care facility people, you know, or patients or people that are traveling abroad. We want something that's really going to show a true representation of the population and do that, do you know, 
genomic surveillance. And as you mentioned, that national approach is really, really important. That's something that the new you know, Biden administration has emphasized. But there has to be, and this is something we even discussed with the National Academies Committee, a larger data framework for what is needed to assess this, to monitor evolution. And you have to propose it, though. So it's all of those things. You know, you mentioned at a larger level, but it's also about ensuring that these local and state labs and university labs have more people, have more people to run the samples, to report the samples, and that we can also get them from doctor's offices and hospitals and et cetera. You know, I, it's, it's yeah, all of these I things. You. But if you but if you put out the resources, you know how things work in this country. If you put out the resources and say, hey, we are putting together 5 million, 10 million, 20 million implementation grants to go to labs throughout the country for teams of individuals to do just this, just the things you've highlighted, teams of people would spring up. They would come together, A, because they want that money, but B, and more importantly, because many of them feel a real need to contribute. I'm amazed at how much capacity right now in the country is sitting idle at universities. Sure, oh, I, I would entirely agree with you. <laughs> we that, have that, so many resources at universities that we're simply not employing the way I wish we would. And, 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 I, it, and yeah. it's not a hard problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Just put the resources out there and let the academics and the communities come up with solutions. You'll find best practices will emerge and you can then propagate it across the country. Look, here's the deal. Here's the fundamental problem that we are dealing with. The reality of the situation is that if you believe Darwin, the goal of the virus is to survive. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it, is, <laughs> it is to mutate itself, to find a copy of itself that is resistive to the vaccines we have. That's its job. And so we know that that's what's going to happen at some point. If you allow it to propagate, every time there is a infection, when one person infects another, there's a slight mutation. That's the virus Mm -hmm. kind of modifying itself for its own survival. And in time, the mutated entities will be resistant to the vaccines, and then they will go on and propagate. Then we have to develop a new vaccine to deal with that one. So we're going through this process where we are constantly being vaccinated, (laughs) right? And we're being reactive, right? But why not put the surveillance frameworks in place in the country so that the doggone thing isn't widespread by the time you figure out that your vaccines aren't working, because that's what we're headed to. We're headed to a a situation where, oh, a large percentage of this area is vaccinated, but the COVID-19 virus is still expanding dramatically. And oh, well, it's a variant and the variant is resistant to the vaccine. Now we have to figure out how to stop this one. And you're literally back to square one all over again. At least if you have the capacity for genetic surveillance spread throughout the country, we have a much better chance of stopping it in its tracks when it happens, because it's going to happen. That's what's supposed to happen. I think there's two things. The first is we really should have ramped up genomic surveillance way earlier in this. You know, we were struggling with testing early on, but to me, that would have been the time frame to say, all right, this is a virus. We know viruses mutate. So let's ramp up national genomic surveillance. And 
so we were late to the game, right? We were flying blind for a while, but you know, you mentioned funding for universities, which I entirely agree with, but part of that also includes that some of the hurdles for funding for smaller research groups or those that don't have the prestige is that it's very easy to see a famous name on a grant proposal and automatically go with that. So I just think a little bit more equitable distribution for those grants is really important because we want this to be you know, an effort that's across the US and not just focused on a handful of universities that have no, I you know, the most, I get it. It, the most it, famous it, it, researchers. No, no, no. I get it. And all of that is true. Here's the reality. We first just have to get a process out there. Right now, we have nothing. And even if it went to a handful of prestigious places, you all know the titles to them. That would be better than the framework that we have now. So people say that we are planning for the next pandemic using old lessons. If you were in charge of the fight against this pandemic, what would you have done or want to do differently? (laughs) That's such a big question. It it is, but (laughs) but it's the reality of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't think one person can answer it though. So I'd say the first thing I would do is have a multidisciplinary team because one of the biggest issues we often face is that we don't incorporate more voices from people responding to threats real time and ensuring diverse voices are heard. So, you know, there are a few things, um, you know, ongoing and sustained investment in public health, right? Not just departments and resources, but personnel. Because I can throw a ton of money at something, but unless you actually have the bodies there to do the job, it's not going to solve the problem. You know, you mentioned more national genomic surveillance. I would add that, but also testing and a more flexible testing strategy. One of the big things when we talk about pandemic preparedness is I think a lot of our training and our response tends to be focused on disease-specific Ebola or pandemic flu, and not not necessarily when we're dealing with a novel pathogen that challenges us in terms of how we provide public health guidance, meaning the guidance will likely change. So, you know, I think a more nimble approach to public health guidance and communication, more effective science communication. You know, I, I realize that's not always the first thing that people think of, but we have really struggled to explain nuance and the science behind recommendations, you know, the strength of science and how we weigh things, but also the information that's out there, you know, the armchair epidemiologists or the folks that you see, you know, sometimes in the media that really aren't experts in the field and are doing this out of notoriety and how much extra work everybody's having to do to combat that. So that piece is really, really important, but fundamentally COVID shown us a lot of the vulnerabilities we knew existed and some that we thought were non-issue. So it's important that we take stock in those and understand where we failed. But, you know, the last thing I would really reiterate is that we have to focus on supporting those most vulnerable and wrap around services that are needed to ensure people can stay home when they're sick or exposed, you know, this false dichotomy of public health versus the economy really needs addressing, not just now, but for the future pandemic where we're asking people to stay home. I think if we focused on supporting people and businesses more, that would have made a big impact. I know that's a lot to unpack, but we could emphasize testing and of course, healthcare workers. And that's in my mind a given, but it's what were the lessons that we learned from COVID that really are more underlying fractures in our critical infrastructure that we've just been kind of avoiding. Oh, I hear you. So as I start to wrap up here, your background is in biodefense. So talk a little bit about that area of study, but then also connect it to preparedness and national security. Yeah. So, you know, biodefense, like global health security, really recognizes that there is this inherent link between, you know, various states and countries and 
our ability to experience, be impacted, respond to infectious diseases, meaning we're only as strong as our weakest link. But biodefense really also acknowledges that infectious diseases, regardless of their origin, are a threat to our well-being. And they can impact us you know, at a very specific public health level, but they can also impact us at a national security level. And our ability to really invest in public health and enhance preparedness and response across all of these sectors is so critical. You know, we have to have policy talking to science and science talking to policy. We have all of these agencies and really how, how are they functioning together? So infectious diseases, you know, as we've seen with COVID pose a considerable threat to our health and our well-being, but also our critical infrastructure and, you know, our, our ability to respond to all kinds of threats. So biodefense, you know, and, and we always stress, you don't want to over-securitize disease because that can often hinder response, but it acknowledges that infectious diseases really impact us at a level that we're not used to, you know, they're not isolated in a single event, but can continue to bubble like we've seen COVID and that our response is vastly unique to them. So we need to be able to acknowledge that it's not going to be a singular event. It's something that can take months or years to manage. You know, there are so, so many layers to this. I just want to thank you for taking some time and going through this with us. I know I pressed you on some questions. Uh, <laughs> that was a treat. This, but this is kind of the thing that we have to do if we want to start to unpack real solutions to real problems. So I want to thank you for helping us go through this deep dive into the COVID-19 pandemic. And so to all of us in the listening audience, I'm giving an open welcome and thanks to Saskia Popescu, epidemiologist and term assistant professor in the biodefense program and Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government for a fascinating conversation. Until next time, this is Mason President Gregory Washington saying, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.